It's episode 38 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today, my good friend Erica Hall returns to the show. She's a founder and principal at Mule Design in San Francisco and author of the forthcoming book, Conversational Design. We talk about the role of designers as critical voices in the ethical decisions that companies make and the morality of venture capital in sustainable businesses. So let's get right to it. Uh, two good things happened to me today. Uh, one was that the sun was shining in London, and the second one was that I had fish tacos here in London, and they were good. Wow. <laughs> you know, I I believe you because the food in London is so good, and uh, but it, and I've had a very good vegetarian spicy burrito in Stockholm, so I am <laughs> open to the possibilities of the global Mexican food supply chain working out. You know, it is, it is. So the tacos I had, to be fair, were sort of, they were as they were the kind of food you would get in Mexico, which is not Mexican food if you're from San Francisco. You know what I mean? So I am still searching for the kind of mission burrito, but I found one. Uh, in December, I went to a conference called Slush, which was super cool, uh, in Helsinki. And after I'd like, I gave a talk and it was like, and then I spoke to a bunch of people afterwards and all of that. I was exhausted. And rather than go out to like a speaker dinner thing, I found a, I found a, a taqueria in Helsinki, right in the center of town. And, um, I had a really good burrito there. I was so impressed. It's called Cholo's. So <laughs> if you're ever in Helsinki, go to Cholo's, you get a pretty good burrito. It's, it's actually kind of mission style burrito. Nice. Nice. That's actually, that's a thing I love to do when I travel is I, I love to seek out Mexican food to see who actually manages it because it pops up good Mexican food, tacos, burritos in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. And yet New York City is not one of them. No, 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 no. There's a fondness for iceberg lettuce inside burritos in New York City, I've realized. And and that was enough for me to to, to put me off it. But um, Shuddering. Yeah. I am shuddering. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but that's, um, that's a good strategy. Uh, find your comfort food, uh, in the, in the city, in the foreign city that you happen to be in and see how it, see how it pans out. That's good. Uh, have you been, have you been on the road or have you been around? Uh, the last place I was on the road, I was in Prague in September. Yeah, that was, uh, did you get tacos, burritos? Did I get burritos? I almost, I came very <laughs> close to going to the taqueria in the Prague airport on the way home. And I'm a little sad I didn't just for fact finding purposes, mm. but, uh, no, I, I did not. Uh, I ate a lot of rice and potatoes and things mm. because, you know, I don't, I don't eat meat and that's like, that flusters checks a, a little bit, a little bit. Oh, they yeah. were very okay. nice at the conference. They were very accommodating, but they really, they have special restaurants for vegetarians and then they have restaurants. So uh, <laughs> That could be uh, a challenge. I can imagine. Yeah. But the conference was lovely and uh, I had one of my best workshop groups ever, I would say. Uh, and I think maybe the key to how much they hung in with enthusiasm throughout the afternoon was that during lunch, many of them had a lunch beer. Oh, the great equalizer. Yeah. They all had a, like a small, a fairly restrained sized beer. And then we're going through the afternoon, which can be, you know, it's a rigorous day. And they kept up with all of this enthusiasm. They were so into it. And I thought back like, fine, you know, maybe the Czech people and, you know, I'm half Czech, so I want to be very uh, gracious towards them. I said, maybe they're just into the material and maybe it's just having a small beer in the middle of the day. <laughs> That's a good conference hack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was the conference? Web Expo in Prague. Oh, nice. So not specifically a design conference. Uh, no, not not specifically. It was about uh, all... Uh, all sorts of, of different things, but it was a lot of, uh, I always like the European spin on the conference. They, uh, they glam it up mm. a bit more than we do here in the States, but they had, you know, really interesting people from all over. And that's what I, I really like. Cause I, I'm, you know, make new friends and colleagues 
And um, that was really, really delightful. I'm thinking, yeah, I think a little bit about conferences and, um, and wanting to attend or participate in more sort of generalized business conferences or even like other verticals and go there and talk about design as a method of like practicing business as opposed to going to design conferences, which I, th- I still think are very valuable, uh, meeting peers and learning about, you know, what's going on in our, uh, in our discipline. But from my own perspective, I think finding other places to go talk about design is a little compelling right now. Cause I think it's a message the world kind of needs. It feels like. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think as something I've noticed in, in the past, uh, maybe 18 months or so is that there seems to be a declining level of, of enthusiasm. Like there's a lot of inventory around there for the more generalized quote unquote web conference, huh. but the, the web's just, a, it's a thing now. It's not a special area of endeavor. It's embedded in most life processes mm-hmm. in, in many places. And so I, I really feel like the idea that, Oh, we're just going to get uh, a lot of s- interesting or smart people together and, the quote unquote web will be the organizing principle. Yeah. I think it's hard to put together cohesive programming anymore because it could mean anything. And so I I think that's kind of been an inflection point where conferences are figuring this out. We can't just say, learn about the web. Right. No, I agree. I mean, we were talking uh, on the last episode of this podcast, we were talking a little bit about how, uh, frankly, um, there, there aren't, necessarily tech companies they're just only companies and all of them have to be infused with with understanding of how technology works to to make products at all anymore it's um it is that big shift and i think yeah seeing that in conferences that were traditionally sort of web internet conferences um yeah like who goes to those you know or on the other hand who wouldn't if they can find a way to sort of distinguish themselves or differentiate themselves interesting yeah Right. That, that's why I think in, in Europe, you get the regional ones, you yeah. know, where you get like, oh, the group, you know, because any given community in a city might not be as large. And because it's so easy, I think, to get around Europe uh, much easier than I think in the US. And so maybe they, they function more as big regional get togethers <laughs> uh, as, a, as opposed to really being about a specific expertise. I yeah. think that's one, that's one way that there may be a little different there yeah. than here. Yeah. 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 Still good to get together with peers. Um, regardless, I think it's, that's always valuable, still valuable for, for conferences. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Hey, I should, uh, I should mention that you are the first repeat visitor on the show or like up to almost 40 episodes of the podcast. Uh, and you were on episode zero you were you were yes. gra- you were gracious enough to uh, I had this idea for a podcast. I'm like, I don't know if it's ever going to work, but would you help me prototype it? And so we made a prototype, uh, and we actually launched that one. It was the first one we put up. You can see it in the in the um, on the website if you go all the way back uh, a few pages. There's episode zero. It's you and I chatting about user research. I think we were talking about. And so anyway, thanks mm-hmm. for being on the show again. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy. I was very. Honored to be the first pancake, and I'm, I'm very happy to be the the first friend of the show. Friend to, of the show, uh, Erica Hall returns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's great. I, I appreciate it. Um, you have been thinking a lot about. Well, I should let you describe it, but really, like business models and society, and I don't know, capitalism, and you know, some lightweight topics like that, haven't you? <laughs> I, I am known for my enthusiasm for lightweight topics. <laughs> So what's on your mind? What have you been doing? So what have I been doing? So I I live here in San Francisco, which has been, you know, in in the 21st century subsumed into the concept of Silicon Valley. And I've been working in uh all things internet for gosh, two decades now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, there's always I, I've seen so many hype cycles and trends and next big thing. And I was there when it's like, hey, you can use this thing called the internet to to do things. What on earth is that going to look like? And we were there. I mean, you were, we were all there. It's like, I mean, this is like the Wizard of Oz. Like <laughs> you were there and Uncle Ed was there and Toto was there. And, and we were walking down the yellow brick road of the web for the very first time. And now, okay, certain things have, have matured. Like you said, it's a part 
of, uh, you know, all businesses kind of have to be technology companies. And so now I think, especially in this year, we are stepping back and saying, what, what hath we wrought? Yeah. And, um, and so my, my question, because I've always, uh, you know, for virtually all of my design career, I've, I've been a design consultant. I've stood outside any particular, you know, organization or business model while trying to help them. And while trying to think about design in general. And what I've really noticed is that, uh, the voice of design that used to be a lot more, uh, on the agency side has not only moved in house, but has often moved into the investing side. You know, you yourself Mm, are an example of that. Irene Ow, John Maida took a, a tour through KPMG. And what's interesting to me about that, especially in light of all of these things we're, we're wrestling with, you know, we're, we're looking back and seeing that, you know, social media seems to have uh, some, you know, it, it's very compelling and has really brought people together and enabled people to find each other and, and strengthen and have relationships. And it has all these good things, but there's also a sense about maybe it's all gone too far. Maybe it's gone too far in terms of, uh, becoming a source of news or a sole source of community. And now we're talking about, uh, internet, the internet way of doing things. And especially the, uh, way of doing things associated with high growth, early stage companies, Hmm. we're looking at applying that model to infrastructure and to society. You know, it's getting into our, our ideas about public transportation. It's getting into our ideas of home and, and all of these things. And the, what this brings together to me is that designers who, in addition to having a, a creative function, also have a critical function. And, and I mean, I kind of mean that both ways, like designers are critical and designers have a useful function of critiquing. Yeah. Criticism. Uh, yeah. You know, what's yeah. going on and asking mm-hmm. questions. And so my big question, my question for you that I've, I've wanted to ask you for a long time is, you know, you've had like every possible role as a designer and now you're working on the investment side and this what must be a very exciting position of, of finding and helping new companies bring new exciting things to the world and really infuse them with a good customer experience and, and a good exchange of value and all of that. But how do you see your role in not just uh, finding interesting ideas or getting a good multiple on your firm's investment, but how do you, how do you see your participation in this creation of the future in which maybe any individual or any uh, community or society's goals might not actually be aligned with investment goals? Well, no. <laughs> That's just, I, you know, it's a small question. It's just, I was thinking about that. You know, no, there's this is a, seriously uh, there's what a, I'm like at the breakfast table. Yeah, so. there's a new version of Sketch. Want to talk about that? No, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Is it going um, to destroy society, Jeff? <laughs> no, that's great. All right. So those are there's a <laughs> lot of questions in there. Um, I think that uh, you, you hit a number of, of points. Um, and I like, I like that. This is stuff I think about all the time, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, uh, I want to find a way to get to an answer there. Um, I think there are, there's, there's kind of two ways to think about the, a big picture, uh, your big picture question. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think there is looking at, uh, venture capital as a model, as a, as a kind of a systemic, uh, way that we bring companies into fruition. And, and you're mm-hmm. talking, I think, about some of the sort of ethical and moral implications of that model. And then there are just the way that you, firms behave and the values that they have and the way they reflect society, the way they want to, uh, or, or perhaps even want to change society. So mm-hmm. I think about, yeah. you know, the simple fact that 4% of general partners at venture firms are female, for example, right? Like yeah. that is not a reflection of society, but it is a reflection of uh, our culture and where it has been, but not at all where we want it to go or 
you know, uh, I'm, I'm speaking at least for my firm, wouldn't speak for all of them, but, um, but those are, so those are uh, two ways of thinking about it. And I, I probably have answers for your questions and we can, you know, sort of find our way there. I don't think I have any proclamations to make, mm-hmm. but let me kind of back you up to talking about in-house versus independent. I think that's a little bit of the kind of dichotomy you set up. Yeah. And, uh, because I have done both. You have primarily, uh, I mean, you were sort of in-house very early in your career, weren't you? Didn't you start? Yeah. Extre- extremely early in-house. But then, a- uh, you and Mike have essentially been doing mule design for, like, gosh, it's been quite a while, hasn't it? Almost 15, the 18? The entire 21st century. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, good. And I did it for about five years uh, with Adaptive Path. I was working as a um, consultant uh, and eventually left it because I found it very frustrating. So it might be interesting for us to kind of t- tease apart the differences there uh, because I I think and, – and it very much points along the line of my own career ending up where I have – which was that I found that I just did not have the influence that I wanted to have over the experiences that companies were creating for their customers when I was a consultant. And that by going in-house, I was able to gain more, frankly, control and influence Mm -hmm. so that I could take what I felt was a more appropriate way to make decisions about how products came into fruition and what they ended up being by essentially like, well, you know, going into companies to do that as a job, but but then even more so starting companies with that as a foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe I kind of like that points to then after having done that a couple of times and done so successfully being offered a a opportunity to come to the other side of the table and be involved in the decisions to where that capital is placed using those same, the desire for that influence to say, this is a method that I think that is a more just way of making products. And I think um, by having access to capital to invest companies that embody those values, uh, it's kind of the ultimate source of leverage. So that was kind of my career journey from like doing consulting work to being frustrated to going into companies and essentially being frustrated to starting my own and not being frustrated and ending up where I am today. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I've had, you know, there was a great, I won't say necessarily exodus, but I think there was a period where a lot of people had, you know, notable designers had been working uh, in consultancies for about, a, you know, a decade or so and decided, ah, this is too frustrating. I'm, I'm going in house uh, or I'm going to start my own thing you know, Koi Vin did this, uh, you did this, uh, other, a lot of other designers did this with sort of a pronouncement that uh, consulting is dead. Um, and, and the way I see it, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because I've heard this, this frustration expressed before that, oh, I can't have as much influence or control over the products, uh, you know, coming in as a consultant as I can in-house. And I think that's so depends on the organization and especially on the business model, because I look at, uh, you know, some of the, the, the companies that are struggling uh, today with um, with how to uh, manage their influence on society. And and to my mind, the um, uh, the either the public shareholders or the, you know, venture or uh, investors uh, seem to be the ones who have the more influence because the designers, no matter how much you design towards the customer experience or towards, you know, that triple bottom line that includes the planet, ultimately the fiduciary responsibility seems to override that in many cases. And it gets tucked into words like, oh, we need to increase, um, you know, we need to grow, we need to increase engagement without necessarily unpacking uh, the values, both positive and negative, that terms like that uh, include. And so I feel that as a consultant, I can come in from the outside and actually sometimes have more influence because I can step outside and be a voice uh, that doesn't come from within the model, but to say, oh, I see ways that you can connect the value that you want to extract uh, from your customer base, from various other resources, and better connect that 
to real values that people have out in the world that you might not be seeing mm -hmm. because, you know, you're really focused on, on your particular model. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's huge value in that, to be perfectly honest. I know that was not a role for me that I did mm -hmm. not, I did not enjoy that. Like yeah. I'm going to come and be an expert for a month or six weeks or whatever in that, uh, I just never felt that I understood the problem well enough. Uh, maybe it just takes me time. I also realized that I learn and think a lot better by building and testing and iterating mm. like that for me. Um, uh, and I love the input of research, but it's seldom that I actually do the research. And mm. so I think that's a little bit different. That's just, you know, growing self-awareness over a couple of decades. But, but I do, I, I don't think, I don't think consulting is dead. I think the outside voice brought in at the appropriate time at like one of those teachable moments, you know, yeah. is hugely valuable. And I've made use of that too. Um, and I also think that there are different kinds of design that, that, um, that fit better. Like I often recommend, uh, especially for small companies, like, uh, don't tire outside user experience consultants, bring that ca capability inside. But for visual design, that might be something that you change and iterate over the course of a couple of years. And, and it's often good to get a, like a fresh perspective on the surface layer of the, of the design and branding work that you're doing by bringing somebody outside in. So I think, you know, all over the place, um, there are times when consulting works really well and, and um, times when I think it still works better in house. I think another part of, uh, of what has happened was that in these, like, let's say 10 years or the past 10 years, so my, uh, many designers have moved from consulting to in-house because, frankly, there are opportunities to be more senior as a designer in-house than there ever have before. And that is because I think there has been a shift towards more value in being placed in design by bigger companies that I think we actually have more and more gotten a seat at the table uh, and that uh, that has led to, frankly, more opportunity in-house than there had been earlier in you and I, when you and I were starting our careers. So I think that's a shift that, that, that is mm -hmm. relevant as well. And for me, that's, that's a great sign. So if there are fewer agencies and more people in house, it's because they need to be in house because there's, there's opportunity there and we should uh, exploit that opportunity. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and we're, I mean, we're changing our model a lot more to be, uh, you know, mentors and coaches yeah. to internal teams yeah. and to also help with, um, you know, some strategic questions, uh, because a lot of times organizations, it, it's, it's the thing. It's like, sometimes you need an outside perspective, but they're absolutely, it's, it's been fantastic to see companies build large, significant, very productive, very fulfilled internal design teams. Like that, that is fantastic that it isn't like, Oh, it's something that always exists outside business. And, and I would say that I, I think designers need to get even more up and into the business because uh, I feel like design is still being parceled out mm. oh, as yeah. kind of a separate function as opposed to, oh, let's call it design thinking yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Should, should be a part of absolutely every function of a business. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, to me, design is, is creating an intentional exchange of value right? You create something, you put it out in the world, you provide some value, you get some value in return. And I think it's when you do that without really thinking through the context and the human behavior side of it, as well as, you know, the, the business uh, return and the engineering feasibility. It's like that way of perceiving the world and looking at all the implications should be embedded in absolutely every business function, not just, oh, we have a big design team yep. and they do the empathy with the customer thing. Right, right, right. So, so is it that, that empathy with the customer that, um, that qualifies in your mind designers to be the sort of standard bearer, uh, the, the people that are responsible for the ethics of the business? Uh, because I, I, that's what I heard you say earlier on, right? That there is some, uh, there is often at conflict the experience that people have with a product and the company's desire for growth and profits at all cost. That, that, mm -hmm. that there is tension and friction between that in many cases. And that uh, design is the way through or that designers are the ones who should be, uh, I don't know, held responsible or more able to affect change? Yeah, I, I think both or or either one of those because uh, I, I think designers are more prepared to 
to question the intent, to ask, oh, who benefits from this? And I think an important thing about dis- about collaboration, especially across disciplines that is sometimes missed, is that uh, that dynamic of strong perspectives in conflict with one another uh, is the way to, I think, get to something better for all parties. Because I think sometimes people come in and they're like, oh, we, we want to have more consensus and we want to agree. And there's a sense that you want no tension in a functional team. And I think really strong collaboration. You should absolutely mm-hmm. have the different people at the table uh advocating for uh for their perspectives and um and be able to use that you know whole dialectic you know the the, oh i I put forward something you argue (laughs) with it we i defend it and we get to something stronger um and that's not something that often designers are trained in so designers might have a good sense of where the value is. They might, you know, if they're evidence-based, know a lot about customer behavior and know a lot about uh, that type of thing, but but aren't often in a position to argue for that or set the terms of, of the argument that gets to something that's that's kind of better in more ways than just high growth or profitable. Hey, all you freelancers out there, you know how important it is to make smart decisions for your business, right? Our friends at FreshBooks can save you up to 192 hours with their cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculously easy to use. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has dramatically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. Let me give you just two examples. First, Their new notification center is like your personal assistant. You'll always know what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what needs to be dealt with pronto. Here's another example. When you email a client for an invoice, FreshBook can show you whether they've seen it or not, which totally puts an end to all of the guessing games around communicating with your clients. If you're listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now is the time to try it. FreshBooks are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show. No credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash presentable and enter presentable in the how did you hear about us section. That's it. That's all you have to do. 30-day free trial. Thanks to FreshBooks for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So um, maybe maybe some recent examples uh, might help the conversation. Uh, like you mentioned to me earlier in an email about uh, both Snap and Uber as examples of uh, where um, perhaps ethically things have not gone uh, as as uh, as well as they could have gone. You want to tell me a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, because the I was thinking about those companies specifically because I was thinking about the uh, gap between the values that make something really successful in the eyes of, of venture investors and what is actually really good either for long-term sustainability, because I'm all for, you know, I'm not a complete uh, communist. I'm, <laughs> I'm all for... <laughs> not complete communist. Not complete communist. Um, no, I, I think I think that uh, the venture capital model can be really productive in terms of providing incentives for uh, interesting things that that scale and and bring new interesting things into the world. However, that is not the only model, and I and I think it can um, it can lead to some bad things. I'll say. So you look at you look at a company like Uber, and Uber, you know did some things that were very, very useful. It's like you talk about disruption Mm. Uh, coming from San Francisco. The taxi industry needed a little disruption because they were essentially a monopoly, terrible service. And, you know, Travis Connick came in and first he saw, oh, there's excess capacity uh, with idle black cars that we can use to provide a more elite, reliable form of, uh, you know, door-to-door transportation in urban environments. That was, that was great. That was a great insight of, oh, there's some idle value sitting around here that I could just put to work. And then as far as the taxi companies need competition and we need a better product, you know, you need to be able to call a ride with your smartphone. That is all 
great and and fantastic because I'll tell you, taxi service is better now. Uh, but then everything else that went along with it in terms of of treating it like the model, you know, it was the big joke, like, oh, every new company is the Uber for X. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the their phrase wasn't move fast and break things. They said hustle or something like that. But it really because of their early success and because of the hype around it, it made it seem like certain toxic approaches to business Mm -hmm. were something to be emulated. Right. And, uh, you know, and they got this huge valuation and now we're ruining unicorns by calling companies with a certain valid valuation unicorns. Oh, you mean ruining which, actual unicorns, the animals. Yeah, ruining yes. the concept of unicorns, <laughs> which, you know, we grew up in the same time and it was all unicorns and rainbows were just, you know, nice things you had on your trapper keeper. And now it means like a, a company that's taken a, a lot of cash and has this huge valuation, uh, which is, you know, it's different. And so, yeah. And with everything that's come out uh, uh, about Uber over the past year, like the more that we actually learn about the business workings, the less it seems like something to emulate. And and so I'm, I'm interested in, in your take on that. And then I mentioned Snap to you because I was reading about what a great win that IPO was for Lightspeed Ventures, you know, they made a tremendous amount of money. And so again, that's something that from a venture uh, perspective, I'd think it's like, oh, let's get another one of those because because venture capital seeks an exit, right? You seek a, a multiple of your investment that you distribute to your limited partners and founders and, and everything that keeps the whole thing going. But it turns out that what was supposed to be the like, oh, you know, Snapchat has this interface that's too difficult for the olds to use. And that makes it really innovative. Oh, it turns out that as you move past that initial core set of early adopters, it's just got a badly designed interface. <laughs> but okay. Well, no, I was going to, I was going to sort of distinguish between the two because I both think they're very interesting case studies uh, in yes. that I feel like Uber is very much a failure of values. And I feel like Snap is very much a failure of kind of what you and I do, design and research-based design, right? So I think Snap gained a tremendous amount of, quote-unquote, engagement based on a limited audience and very specific audience uh, that was willing to adapt to that um, technology, the, or, or rather that experience, that interface. Uh, the failure came from understanding whether the, the the scale of growth that they had seen based on that audience would map to a much more generalized audience. And to me, that is like going from early adopters to that sort of crossing the chasm into a mainstream and late adopter audience, right? Can it do that? Facebook clearly did. Started in college students, went to everybody, right? Could Snapchat do the same thing? There were bets that it could, and it doesn't look like it may have, right? Not to mention that there are experiments and things like hardware with the, what are they? The yeah. Spectacles. Specs. Again, right? Like probably a very compelling experience for 72 hours. And, you know, and then after that, like, no, I'm not actually going to wear this every day. And again, those are the sorts of things that the research methods and the design driven product development that, that, you know, you and I do probably can help uncover, um, in, in scenarios where that's more embedded into the culture of the company. The Uber thing, on the other hand, I think, and the Uberization of business models, I think comes from a couple of things that are true and perhaps even good, right? That there are technological innovations that happen all the time. That it turns out when you can get a GPS into a screen uh, and a battery that lasts long enough, like that device is transformative in a way that we did not anticipate. So that, you know, rather than trying to find a cab on a street, you can just say, hey, come to where this device is. Like that's fundamentally transformative and there are still ways every day i see where that those combination of technologies kind of overlapping each other in an interesting way opens up new opportunities that that we never considered before there was also this idea from a business perspective that um you know once the black cab thing kind of proved the model that the technology worked or the black car thing uh that the technology worked that oh my gosh why don't we try like hey what those folks at airbnb are doing with like quote unquote excess capacity that perhaps people will want to do the same thing uh, with their cars that maybe they will like, you know, drive people around and Uber X came out of that, which was clearly the, the driver for all of the growth. 
that, I think, those two things are both inherently, uh, if not uh, um, agnostic, I, I don't see any significant drawback to them as basic ideas. But then taking them as a way of like, all right, we are going to exploit this for everything we possibly can. Right. We're going to use systems of getting around regulation by using our, that very technology to make sure that like government people that we list, uh, can't, um, you know, don't, don't see the real numbers when they open the app and stuff like that. The, the, what did they call it? The gray balling that they were doing and now mm-hmm. are getting, you know, hauled in front of congressional hearings about. Um, likewise, like, oh my gosh, these are not actually, these people that are picking up rides are doing it full time and we're not treating them as employees and therefore we're not providing them the benefits or the security or the, any of the other things that come along inherently with traditional employment. That too, right? Doesn't feel like mm-hmm. exploiting excess capacity that people have, but instead exploiting the people. I, right? Yeah. So that to me feels like there are a set of values that, uh, were inherent in the way the business was grown. Uh, regardless of the sort of the nucleus of the ideas that led to, I think, a lot of people emulating things that were really, frankly, very bad for society. Right. So, so I guess both both of those cases, which which are uh, very different, but I think each one illustrates potential point of critique for you know design being associated with this growth yeah. is that how do you as you know because the hype and the growth benefit the investment. And so how do you protect any idea of sustainability or of um, not or of a set of values that might be anti-growth, mm-hmm. but are like pro people, pro ethics? Yeah. Well, right. I, like, yeah. how how do you how do you do that if they're actually, you know, really, when you talk about incentives, if if what your job is, is to, you know, to really have a crude reductive distillation like your job as a partner with design expertise is to guide these companies to a successful exit and feel free to contradict me on that but it's like but that's really the incentive like you win you get you attract more capital to give yeah so so then how do you from working within that model because everything you do and say fundamentally represents that model how do you advocate for or instill or protect this other set of values mm-hmm. for things like sustainability beyond a giant exit or for not uh, having this like growth at all costs mindset that that leaves a trail of like broken people and <laughs> institutions and trust in its wake sure the very nature of the model like again to my very first comment right there is the there is the nature of venture capital and then there are the values associated with the firms that practice it, right? So mm-hmm. in the nature of venture capital is very much designed around companies failing. That is the, that is, yeah. that is because genuinely, genu- generally that is the rule of thumb is that something like 80 to 90% of all the companies that are going to start, even the ones that get funding are going to fail. It, it is inherently very, very risky to start a new company. Therefore, the wins have to be such a size that the 10% that do actually succeed at building something that is sustainable from a growth perspective, I'll be very clear to point out, yeah. that, that sustainable growth has to be big enough that it makes up for all of the losses that go into it. And that's that inherent, very risky nature. That's why so in the grand scheme of investing of the trillions of dollars worldwide that are invested, a tiny, tiny sliver of it is invested in venture capital. Very, very yeah. little, you know, like some of our LPs have, are, are giant endowments and they put, you know, a half a percent of what they do into just into venture capital. Everything else is in all the usual, uh, investment, uh, instruments. So that, that's the nature of it. And, and that can be, that can feel sort of very cutthroat. It is, it is interesting in our current society, in our current culture that, uh, as, li- as tiny as venture capital is, it has unbelievable amount of media exposure because it seems to be this transformative thing that's affecting everybody's lives and there's all these overnight quote unquote overnight millionaires and right. all of this kind yeah. of stuff happening i get all that so um on the value side like i can only really speak for myself and that is that i had no intention of getting into finance in my career it was never <laughs> never on the radar entrepreneurialism was and again like i'll go back to like saying it was my attempt at like what if you created a company with like user experience at the center 
even if it's not a company that, that does user experience stuff. Like, oh my gosh, I think that could be transformative and I believe that it is. And so when I went out and sought an investor, and this is going to, I can't help it, but sound like some kind of advertisement for True Ventures that I work for now, but it's my own, it's my story, right? When I yeah. went out to hey, seek- True Ventures, climate client from, from the inception of the fund. So, uh, that's so right. I also think that's right. that you were. your firm is one of the, you know, the better ones out there. But that's how <laughs> I think about it, right? That's what, like, when I went out to, to get venture capital funding for my idea, I had a few offers, I had a few term sheets. I chose the one that I felt most aligned with my own values for how I wanted to build the company. And therefore, when it went well and we got acquired and gave money back to True and uh, the relationship was really solid and I went through my time at Adobe and they offered me a position, I was like, huh, I had never thought of that. But could I continue to practice those values that are clearly aligned between me and this firm at a place that does venture capital, that, that does finance? Like, you know, um, and so I thought a lot about it. I thought really hard about it. And I thought, yes, this is the place where I could do it. So to me, the answer to your question ultimately is that you can provide significant return on investment while practicing the values that I think designers are ultimately inherently behind. That these, the ideas of like having empathy for a customer, wanting to improve people's experiences and therefore their lives – through the design decisions and products that we put into the world in a sustainable way, in a way that's not toxic, in a way that doesn't have the same kind of externalities that society needs to bear, I think it, it genuinely is possible to, to do that. We have been putting a, a ton of time into developing this sort of next generation hypothesis around the emotionally intelligent company, the emotionally intelligent founder as a safer bet, as a less risky scenario to be able to put money in. And to me, it is a, it is a founder or a, or a pair of founders that embody a lot of what we practice. So I think it is somebody that answers questions about their business by looking to the world rather than looking internally into themselves, setting their ego aside and saying, I will find the answer by validating that in what we would call qualitative research methods <laughs> and do that for all aspects of their business. And those are the stories that I listen for when I'm hearing a pitch from, a, from an entrepreneur. Not, I think I can do this. I've got a lot of experience. I know I'm right. But rather, I observe that there was a problem in the world. I validated mm -hmm. that observation by, by talking to people by witnessing the problem being uh, instantiated over and over again in the world. And I think this solution might work, but we have, tr and, and the reason I think that is because we have tried these four or five solutions and they all failed. And mm -hmm. therefore I, you know, and, and to hear that kind of stuff in somebody, you know, with an MBA or uh, with an engineering background or with any kind of background, but to, to say like, Oh, and this is, you know, the quote unquote design thinking at work, right. That I, uh, I validate hypotheses in the real world that I, that I switch to prototyping as soon as possible in any instance, prototyping a business model, anything very quickly that I don't have ego associated with the ideas in the company. Uh, and, and that's just one aspect. That's, that's the sort of empathy driving aspect of the business. There, there, are, there are so many others that I think make up, uh, what we would call an emotionally intelligent company, uh, or emotionally intelligent founders. And, um, and I think by being an emotionally intelligent set of investors, uh, we can find alignment with those kind of people uh, and we can carve out our niche and, and provide a good mm -hmm. return for our investors by, uh, by focusing on that. And that, to me, frankly, is the antidote to everything that's going wrong in tech right now. Mm -hmm. That as, as tech moves into the real world and becomes the real world, that we can say, like, hand on heart, like, this is the way the world is going to go. But the way that it has been practiced thus far has been really poor. And we can make a, I think we can make a difference there. That sounds good. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, it all really sounds good. But I, I, what I will say is that, yeah, you're, but you're still working in a, a venture model where m most companies will fail. The other ones have to win big, you know, like you have to have a Transformers movie for every art film. Mm. And, and so, so I'm really curious because I haven't asked you this before. How are you addressing the, the issue of uh, supporting a diverse range of entrepreneurs or countering the historic underrepresentation of people who might not only have high emotional intelligence, but a much better sense of the range of problems that need to be solved out there in the world? So it's, are yeah. you uh, seeking out 
entrepreneurs of color? Uh, are you seeking out, you know, working with, you know, a di- more diverse array? So I think that happens uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, I think it happens, at least for us, in an uh, attempt to hire in a more diverse sense in our own firm. Uh, and that is a matter of time. We make it a priority and we put special emphasis on it. Uh, but as uh, we all know, like it, it, the, the problem had existed for a long time that there was eight men sitting around the table. Uh, and we can't just swap four out for women or other underrepresented groups. Um, in that instance, <laughs> yeah. so we grow and we expand and we make it an effort to expand in the direction that's more aligned with where we want to be rather than where we were. Um, from a funding perspective, it's the same. Like one of the inherent problems, I think, with the venture model, uh, uh, from my own sort of sense of criticism, is that the way to get your pitch in front of an investor is through an introduction. And that's just how it has always worked, which meant, which means it relies on networking, people's networks. And people's networks look very much like they do. And it's very homogeneous, and that's the way it's always happened. Uh, so we have to find ways to break through that, to say, like, no, we have to overcorrect for that and seek out more and different voices and entrepreneurs. And we're, and we're trying to put a lot of effort into doing that as well. Um, and that starts with saying, like, look, the best source of referral leads for people who uh, could pitch to us is the people we have already invested in and being very specific with them and saying, look, we have different goals than we used to have. We have goals for representation of all the different groups that have not been part of an entrepreneurial community. And we're going to work really hard on that as well. So there are, and there are many efforts kind of industry wide that are starting, that are nascent, uh, but that we're trying to be involved in. And just to say, like, look, the, what entrepreneurs look like in the past, you know, the kid in the, the boy in the hoodie coming out of college, dropping out of college to start his company, uh, is not the model that we believe is the only way forward. So, so that's a start. Uh, it's not a great answer, but it's the it's the beginning of something. It is, it is, and uh, no, and, and I appreciate that. There was a really um, sort of de- depressing because I know it's it's really difficult to kind of root out that bias and to really ex- like like you said, people are really comfortable in their networks, and there's just like so much of that. Um, that bias baked into the evaluation, which is, you know, what we've talked about before yeah. with uh, like Paul Graham, at Y Combinator saying, I, he basically admitted he'd fund any dude in a hoodie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, the Harvard business review published last year, the results of a super uh, upsetting study because it was about Swedish venture capitalists. And you think Sweden is relative to the rest of the world, a, uh, a gender, equality paradise. And they found that, that when they listened to how uh, the investors spoke about the entrepreneurs, even in Sweden, even in this, I think it was a government fund that they were investing on behalf of, that there was all this gender bias stuff that came through like, oh, the, the young man it demonstrates a lot of promise. Oh, the young uh, woman is too unseasoned. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's not like where we are today in many of the financial industries, like you do a mortgage and you type in all the numbers and say like, here's what you get, right? Like there's no formula like that in this very early, early stage stuff. We, we have three criteria, right? Like one is the idea and that's actually the least important of the criteria. The idea that you're coming with is, uh, uh, may or may not work. We don't know. It needs to be in a market that we do believe has potential to, to be of scale, like that there are enough people in the world that want to, uh, pay money for the thing that you would make. So we do have to believe in the market, but ultimately it comes down to the person with the idea because the thing doesn't exist yet. And we have to believe that they are the one that can will it into existence. And so it is about evaluating people. And that is just rife with bias. I totally agree. It is just like we have been talking about with hiring and how do we hire more diverse teams and things like that. We have to break that down. So, um, so yeah, I agree. It is, it is hard um, and it has not been going well. Have you found, do you have any success stories to, to report back and inspire others with? Uh, on the, on the diversity side? Yeah. Well, Just anything mean, where it's like, wow, we found a way to, you know, get new different people into our pipeline. I don't have a great magic bullet to say here, here are yeah. the three steps. Step, step one, do this. Uh, what we did was talk to absolutely everybody 
who we know in our networks and say, this is changing for us now. We're not, we're not right. And we want your help in changing this. So notice that the last five people that you have introduced us to were all white men, no, right? Notice that and help us and help us reach out and, and find more people. Uh, our numbers are better. I should have looked at them up in our, in our latest fund to see, um, that we have, we have more successfully, uh, invested in underrepresented, uh, groups, uh, though the numbers aren't inspiring to me. They're just like, Oh, okay, good. We've taken the first step. There is at least some mm-hmm. indication that some effort it ha- has paid off. It is better than it has been in the past. When, when we look at like our funds from 10 years ago and our funds from five years ago and things like that for now, it has been an acknowledgement that there is a problem and, and, and a, and an interest in taking the steps forward to, to try to address that. Yeah, but I, I can't give you three steps to, to have a more yeah. diverse portfolio. Oh, no, there's, there's nothing about, I think, working with people and dismantling these entrenched biases. There's no, there's no simple solution. This is something we actually run a workshop on gender bias. And the thing we talk about a lot that came out of that is some problems are not knowledge problems, they're habit problems. And if you know humans, you know that changing habits, even an individual, even the simplest habit, like, oh, I want to go for a run three days a week is excruciatingly difficult. And so so this is something where we all treat it like, oh, we know the right thing to do. But as far as developing that as a practice is incredibly difficult. And I think maybe that's the first step to acknowledge is it isn't, there's no tip. It just is what you do every day with every conversation you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, in the early stage investing, it's everything, every single aspect of the entire deal is risk. And we want to eliminate as, as, as much as we are in favor of like, that's a big risky idea. Go pursue that. I want all the other risk to go away. Like, don't do anything fancy with the structure of your company. You're going to be a C corp and you're going to register in Delaware. Don't even, mm-hmm. that's just like, nobody does anything else. Just, we don't want any additional risk on top mm-hmm. of the very, very risky thing you're proposing going to it. And I think that's where bias, all the bias comes in. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, a 45 year old woman with two kids, that seems risky. You know, like, um, I, I <laughs> because think because it's unfamiliar, it's unfamiliar. Right. And all sorts of like, all of this, like the the weight of culture like i don't know uh uh conspires against the the that that habit being um perpetuated mm-hmm. uh yeah. so it's so i i think that's what it is i think it's just like wait a minute stop let's stop doing that and let's just like uh beyond like methods and and moving funding and and supporting groups and studies and all that sort of stuff sure there's there's all sorts of things that we can do we have to start with saying like oh shit, this is a problem mm-hmm. yeah Hmm. And, and so I guess the the last kind of big question slash slash issue I have relates to something that you mentioned earlier, which is such a small uh, percentage of, say, all the investment in the world goes uh, through venture. Right. But especially now when we're talking about designing new things and in, envisioning the future, Somehow the whole story, like the gravity of the exciting gold rush, you know, a couple of brilliant people have an insight and build this like multi-billion dollar company. Somehow that is pulling focus from every other way to solve a problem and every other way to build a business. And so that concerns me because I really see, you know, like you've got Elon Musk talking about the future of transportation is we're all going to take driverless trucks to Mars or whatever. And we're looking at something like this. (laughs) We're looking at, I think, the neglect of the public sector for a whole variety of reasons. But I think one of them is, is, is like there's sort of a sense if you read like the business and technology media about, oh, all it takes is a genius team getting funded and they'll replace all of this stuff with a venture backed startup. Like that's just sort of in the culture, the sense of like all the glamour is around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the ways that, and this is why I was talking about seeing the voice of design embedded in growth capitalism is how do we get people excited about creating something that's slow growth and sustainable and creates jobs in a community? You know, how do we solve these problems, these very important problems that do not scale in the way that is appealing to a venture capitalist, no matter how good the values of that 
designer or that venture capitalist are. Mm-hmm. You just look at that and say, the world needs that. We can't work with that. So what I'm not, again, not going to say you're a Jeff Veen, please provide a pat answer to all the world's uh, issues. But what's your take on that? Well, I think there are some examples of it. I mean, I was so inspired. I, I contributed myself to I remember the group of incredibly talented, design-savvy, tech-savvy, uh, youngish people that stepped out of their career and went and helped get President Obama elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an amazing story. They were, um, and, and it was an amazing success story in how they used the tools of the era in, what was that, 2004, 2008, rather, um, how they used those tools to affect a change and to frankly disrupt the political process in many ways, or at least the election process, the way they, uh, the way they use social media of the day and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think, and, and frankly, I think the, the condition of the political environment today is going to have a new generation of people w- willing to give service, right? And be of service. Mm-hmm. So, but that's, that's almost the, polar extreme of what we're talking about. And, and I think yeah. there's, there's probably some interesting areas in the middle. We talked a lot about that. Like, again, I can only talk from my own experience, but yeah. like we, we, we talked a lot about that when we were starting Typekit. Do we need to take venture capital? Like, what if we owned the whole thing and bootstrapped it and, um, and started up and, and, you know, uh, made it, a made it a, a profitable business from the beginning and, and did all that. And, and every way we tried to slice the problem, we realized, uh, that we couldn't do it. Uh, without money up front that, you know, like everything, especially this was again around the same time as around 2009 it was the early days of uh, web services like Amazon cloud hosting and, you know, servers by the minute. And we realized like, Oh my God, like what it used to cost five years ago to make an, uh, a web app uh, is it, it was like 5% of what it used to cost. Right. And so, so much of that risk went away, that financial risk of outlay, but we, but we couldn't like, four of us together that started the company build everything ourselves. And we just, we just couldn't possibly do it. And we needed to get more people around the table to help us to make the thing. And, and, and I can't pay engineers, you know, 10 cents an hour to spin up, to use, <laughs> use them when they, you know, and things like that. And they need computers and they need, we need an office to put them in. And there are increasingly cheaper ways of doing all of that sort of thing. I don't think, you know, everybody has to be geographically located in San Francisco and pay those rents and mortgages and things like that anymore. We're getting better at distributed uh, development and things like that. But it was an expensive endeavor to try to make the thing that we had envisioned. And the thing that we had envisioned was very much based on, again, the research that we had done in the world and said like, mm-hmm. oh, this... This would have to be a marketplace and we would have to split the revenue with the yeah. creators of the content. And that's going to take a chunk. And they're going to want some reassurances that their content, their fonts are going to um, you know, be both safe and uh, productive for them financially. And so that's going to require some money up front. And like, oh, where does mm-hmm. so in the end of the day, yeah. we realize, okay, we're going to have to give up a portion of our company for that money. And that sets us down a path. Because once you give up the portion of the money, well, those investors, they want it back. And then they went back in a multiple, like, you know, because that's the model. And yep. so, so that leads us on a path that leads to some, to, uh, frankly, two different places. One is through acquisition. One is through uh, going into the public markets. But either way, mm-hmm. this liquidity event that helps return the money back to the investors. And, and so somewhere in the middle, which is what I'm talking about, this a long-winded way of saying there are, there are the opportunities, obviously. Like, go look at everything that Jason Fried publishes about Basecamp, yep. right? Like, <laughs> there are very clearly opportunities to do a bootstrapped company. And by bootstrapped, I, I very much mean like uh, from day one, we are collecting money from people and using that to build the service and pay ourselves and that we have not taken an outside investment. Now, to be fair, Jason started it, right? 37 Signals mm-hmm. uh, was a consulting company and they used the proceeds from lucrative consulting contracts to pay for the first development. Yeah. And in fact, the very first iteration of Basecamp was a tool they used with their, for, for client management, I believe, for project management and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so even that had some source of like, okay, we're not just going to all work for free for a year until we get this thing built and can start to charge for it. Yeah. So that, yeah, that sort of, uh, bootstrapping is, is really hard. And so, yeah, so I'm just wondering how, but, but again, there, I mean, there's also the opportunity to solve new problems within, established organizations. And I think that's often the place where design consultants come in to help established organizations that have capital, that have 
talent in-house, but just don't know how to pick the right problem and work with that, like that's also a great place to um, to solve some design and business problems together. And it's just a, a question of how how we make that exciting to people because I really think the venture, like I travel all over to these conferences all over the world and Silicon Valley is the model that is emulated as not just a way to bring a return on investment, but a way to solve design and business problems. And I just think it's one way. And that's the, that's the only message I want to get out there is like uh, for some businesses and some problems, it's a great solution but how do we solve all these other problems for people that need to be solved a lot more than, you know, you're having your dry cleaning delivered or new ways to receive a meal kit? Yeah, no, I think I think we're definitely in one of the biggest sort of you were talking about hype cycles very early in our in our conversation. And I think we are experiencing a very appropriate backlash to a lot of the abuses of the Silicon Valley model of the, of the venture capital model. And I think that's, I think that's going to perpetuate as well. I think it's going to disseminate out into the consciousness of like the entrepreneurs in Stockholm and Prague. And they're going to say like, Oh my gosh, if we follow that same path, everybody over here is going to hate us too. And, um, (laughs) and I think the sentiment that you are bringing into this conversation is very much becoming a mainstream sentiment, although very kind of bastardized and polarized and not nuanced at all. But maybe that's just me being defensive because I'm so much embedded in this, uh, this Mm -hmm. whole debate. I'm very excited to kind of carve out a way that, a way forward here and saying like, Oh, look, like you can apply good values and turns out those good values actually reduce the risk. And maybe we go from 80% to 70% of the companies that fail because they are using these values. And maybe then we get to 65% and, and that, you know, uh, that the, that the future entrepreneurs who are thinking about, uh, starting things understand that like, Oh yeah, there are the the people who are going to use this stuff. The quote unquote conversions, you know, are going to, are, are actually people. And that, that, that I should consider them as such and treat them as such and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're also talking about inspiring another generation of designers to go and like start a practice and get into big companies and fight there and make that change. And I think that's admirable. And um, you, you take that and I'll take the other one and let's go do it. All right. Now that- <laughs> <laughs> Fan- fantastic. <sighs> because yes, it does. I think the, the bottom line here is it does require a diversity of perspectives to solve huge, complex problems. Yeah. And I don't want to like, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to demean anybody's experience, but, but I, I, I have felt, uh, uh, not for me personally, but for us as a discipline that designers, frankly, in business have been an unrepresented voice an underrepresented voice for a long time. And that feels like it's changing. Um, and like I said, like I wouldn't want to compare it to anybody's experience that they have had in their careers right. or, or otherwise, but it, it does feel like that has sl- started to change. And I think that's important because, because I think you and I both believe that's the way through a lot of what's going on in, in, in society and culture right now. Yeah. And I, you know, and we're, we are in this period of necessary self-examination because those inspired young people who used the internet to elect Obama, I think some of them became the inspired professional designers who went to work for Facebook. Sure. Yep. And within that context, I think had an influence on the most recent American presidential election. Yeah, but but look, let's see how the system is effect is is handling that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like 18 months ago uh or even 12 months ago. Mark Zuckerberg was like, you thought we would affect the, elect- the elections. That's crazy. Literally, that's crazy was his quote, right? That, you know, he could not conceive of like, wait, this, this thing that I, that I use to like help people share stuff and, and have them go to advertisers and stuff. Like, you think that got, and got Donald Trump elected? And now today he's like, uh, we're kind of changing everything. Like, yeah. uh, you know, so that, and that's just been in 12 months. And, and there's a reason for that. And it's because this feedback loops of like, you know, for better or worse, the media amplifies all of this. And like I said, it's not a very nuanced argument, but the mainstream audience <laughs> understands like, oh my gosh, yeah, like this is, you are exploiting our attention and we're not going to have it anymore. Like, I don't think it self-corrects. I do think that people are very much concerned with 
the, the outcomes that happen. Um, primarily, they measure it economically. But I do think mm-hmm. when, when you see such a change in somebody like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. in, in, his, in his understanding of the influence of, of what he's been building or what they've been building, I, I think it's relevant. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think it really it does come down to, you know, there's the role of the designer as the creator and the role of the designer as the critic. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. you need both of those roles uh, working very strongly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I like this idea of uh, designers learning uh, as part of their craft the role of criticism, the role of debate, and and holding up their yeah. own ideas. Um, you're right. That is not something that uh, is specifically taught early in a career. Like the critique is taught how to critique design work according to a set of design values in a vacuum. And that's why we're really talking so much about, about what the values are at the root, because designers need to learn how to uncover the, the core values of what their work is supporting and be able to critique those, which I believe is a very analogous set of skills, but you're not like no designer is going to go up to a VP of product necessarily and say, Oh, this whole model is completely unethical at Ah. this moment. And I think that's the work to facilitate that discussion. So it is a nuanced discussion and it isn't just a, Oh, this is all evil. You're terrible, but let's really talk about how we can create something, how we can innovate, how we can create something new and also have a real honest conversation about the ramifications and about who benefits from any particular design decision. Mm, yep. 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 I think that's great. Uh, I, uh, I share, I share your ambition on that one for sure. Um, and I think we've gone quite, uh, <laughs> we've, gone, we've gone on for a while. We should wrap up. Uh, yes. you, are you writing, you're writing a new book. I am done writing. Done. You've my written. Let's use the past tense. That's I have important. written. Thank goodness. <laughs> Yes. What is um, it? Is it a uh, book apart? Book apart. Good. Love those guys. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah, it's called Conversational Design, Ooh. and it's about using conversation, just like how we've been interacting here, as a model for creating more human-centered, humane interactions. I can't wait to read it. That's fantastic. Do you have a page up for it or anything yet? Yes, there is a page on the book part site. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. People should see that. Uh, they can go to muledesign.com, learn all about uh, what you guys are practicing and how they can hire you to come and yell at your their CEOs. I think that's the intent. Yes. And yes. Uh, uh, Mule Girl on Twitter, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Great. Yes, I am. And I'll put a bunch of links to some of the stuff you've written lately. It's all very good. Um, so, hey. Thanks for uh, being a friend of the show, coming back on. Uh, it's been great having you. Yeah, thanks. I have to, have to, we have to, now that you're in London, we have to podcast to chat. So sure, that's fine. <laughs> well, let's do it again in another year. How's that? Fantastic. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.